All right, well, good morning once again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 13? And as always, if you're new with us, welcome. It's good to see you this morning. And uh, just to let you know, we are working our way through John's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday morning. And a few weeks ago, we entered into chapter 13. And um, chapter 13 really begins the, uh, the day of our Lord's crucifixion, roughly about 15 hours from the cross when chapter 13 begins. And the evening uh, began in the upper room where Jesus and his apostles were celebrating the feast of Passover together. As the evening progressed, Jesus dropped a bombshell revelation that one of them would betray him. Verse 24, Simon Peter therefore motioned to him to ask who it was of whom he spoke. Then leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? We said, talked about this last week. Uh, they didn't sit at tables like we do today or even as Jewish people do today. Uh, they reclined on the floor. The table lay was a block of wood that lay flat on the floor, and they would uh, recline on their 45-degree angle to the table, reclining on their left side, propped up by their left elbow, using their right hand it was free for them to eat with. That night we know that reclining right in front of Jesus was John the Apostle. Verse 23, he identifies himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's John's way of identifying himself. So John was right behind, uh, in front of Jesus that night, and Judas was right behind him. That was the place of honor, by the way. We even have an expression. I'm not sure it came from that directly, but a similar thought. I've got your back. You only had your closest friend behind you because they would be loyal and would watch out for you. So Jesus gave to Judas a place of honor. Why did he do that? Because he wanted to give him a chance, even at this late hour, to not go through with his betrayal and to receive Jesus as his Savior. Judas was not saved. We talked about that all last week, so if you weren't here, you can go online and uh, listen to that. But uh, So John leans back, because uh, he was just right in front of Jesus, leans back on his chest and says, Lord, who is it? Peter was not right there, but close enough where he was able to get John's attention. When Jesus dropped this bombshell, the whole room went up for grabs. They're all buzzing and, uh, and, and talking and, and shocked. And so Peter motions to John and says, ask him who it is. And that's when John leaned back on Jesus' bread and said, Lord, who is it? In verse 26, Jesus answered, it is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him, entered Judas. Then Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. But no one at the table knew for what reason he said this to him. For some thought because Judas had the money box that Jesus had said to him, buy those things we need for the feast. Uh, we forgot something. Go pick it up. Maybe that's what they were thinking. Or that he should give something to the poor. Having received the piece of bread, he then went out immediately, and it was night. So Judas is gone. One author now sums up the, uh, the, the mood or the scene. The instant Judas was gone, the atmosphere was cleared. And Jesus began to instruct his disciples and prepare them for his crucifixion and his ultimate return to heaven. It was after Judas' departure that he, the Lord Jesus, instituted the Lord's Supper, something that Judas, as an unbeliever, certainly could not share. Judas was out in the night, controlled by the prince of darkness, Satan. But Jesus was in the light, sharing God's love and truth with his beloved disciples. What a contrast. What a contrast indeed. Verse 31 so when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify in him in himself and glorify him immediately. Now, I'm sure you all got that. We'll just move on. Yeah, at first glance, it seems a little confused, doesn't it? Um, a little hard to understand. Let's break it down. So when Jesus said, when John says, so when he, Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, 
now the Son of Man is glorified. Uh, the word now indicates that the events that will lead to Jesus being glorified, his crucifixion and resurrection have now been set in motion. Kind of like a pregnant woman entering the beginning of labor pains, once they start, not false labor, true labor, once they start, that baby's coming. I'm going by good authority. My wife has told me that. Uh, I, I don't have first-hand knowledge. Uh, but what, once a woman goes into true labor, uh, that baby's coming. One way or another, you make it to the hospital, you don't make it to the hospital, that child's going to be born. And the idea is, even so with the, the historic and monumental events of the next three days, now that they have been set in motion, Judas was left the room to, to start the process. It was like uh, dominoes lined up, and Judas was the first domino that was tripped. It would trip a whole series of events that will lead up to Christ's crucifixion, ultimately his resurrection. Uh, that was glory. We're going to sh show you how in just a moment. But uh, interesting that the events have been set in motion. Nothing is going to stop them. Uh, these final events from coming to pass leading up to the new birth of Christ from the grave. Now, if that sounds like a strange way to put that, uh, you can at your leisure this week check out Acts 2, and Peter gives the first spirit-filled sermon of the church age. Remember Pentecost when the church began, spirit was poured out. And so Peter eventually preaches the first spirit-filled sermon, and he at one point in verse 23 talked about Jesus and how he was delivered uh, into the hands of wicked men according to the foreknowledge of God. And he said to them, you have taken him uh, and uh, by lawless hands have crucified and put to death the Lord, whom God raised up having loosed, uh, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Interesting, the Greek word for pains there. Uh, having loosed the pains of death, speaking of Christ's resurrection, is a Greek word that literally means birth pangs. Suggesting, guys, that the tomb was actually a womb that gave birth to Jesus' resurrection glorified body. And might I add, if we don't make it to the rapture and we die physically, whatever tomb we are placed in is going to be a womb from which we will eventually be birthed to a whole new life, resurrection life, having our glorified bodies, never getting weary, sick, uh, never tasting death, never suffering pain or sorrow or whatever. You can read about that. Revelation 22 talks about it. So Jesus uh, was going now to, uh, it was things were set in motion and uh, events would transpire over the next few days that would glorify Jesus. And primarily I'm thinking of the cross initially. Now, Unbelievers don't typically think of the cross, and many unbelievers believe in Jesus Christ, not that they're saved, but uh, they believe he existed. They know what he did on the cross and so on. But uh, many unbelievers don't see the cross um, in terms of glory. They see it in terms of defeat, in terms of defeat. But one author said it well. He said, and I quote, uh, his death might, be, might have seemed like defeat, Yet it was the means by which lost sinners could be saved. It was followed by his resurrection and eventually his ascension, and he was greatly honored, and we would say, and glorified in it all. So verse 31 again. So when he had gone out, Judas left the room. Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. And again, it sounds a little confusing, all right? This statement, though, first and foremost, was Jesus saying, listen, one more time, that he and the Father were one. Now, you have to remember the context. Of course, everything has a context. Events were going to unfold in a few hours that were going to cause his disciples to be crushed, to think that all plans have been destroyed for a kingdom. Our Messiah, he's been crucified. He's been defeated. He was going to lead us in a revolt against Rome. He was going to bring victory to Israel and establish his kingdom where he would reign from Jerusalem over all the earth, visibly and so on. So events were going to be unfolding very shortly and Jesus talks about this again clearly in John 16. We'll get to it eventually. 
Um, but things were going to be set in motion that were going to cause his disciples to have great sorrow. And Jesus wanted them to remember one more time, look, I and the Father are one. He's going to start chapter 14 with the words, you believe in God, believe also in me. I mean, things are about to happen that you're not going to understand. They're going to crush you. But you have to remember, you have to remember, I am God, I and the Father are one. And by saying it this way, by, uh, by expressing it in these terms, what he is saying is, whatever glorifies the Father, me is going to glorify the Father, and vice versa. Because we're one. We're one. You can't be one with God the Father and not be God yourself, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? All things made by Him, without Him nothing was made that was made. Jesus Christ and the Father are one God. That's important that we understand that. One author again put it well, and he said, and I quote, God is glorified in the work of the Savior. It proclaimed Him to be a holy God who could not pass over sin, but also a loving God who did not desire the death of the sinner. It proclaimed how he could be a just God, yet be able to justify sinners. Every attribute of deity was superlatively magnified at Calvary, end quote. Now, guys, this author introduces something that I'd like to spend the rest of our time on this morning. Because in a nutshell, it encapsulates the theme of the entire Bible, the theme of the entire Bible, and that is the problem of sin and the redemption of mankind. The problem of sin and the redemption of mankind. And hopefully, as we get into this, you will understand. As events are set in motion, what's going on is God is going to resolve the problem of sin. God is going to answer the, the question the problem of the ages with regard to fallen man. How can a holy God have fellowship with fallen sinners? This is the problem of the ages and no small problem to deal with. Hopefully as we go through this, you'll understand sometimes buried in a possibly obscure passage, something you might read quickly and pass over is a truth that is so profound that you need to stop and don't read, speed read your Bibles, but read it slowly, methodically, and weighing every word in every context, because there might be a buried nugget of gold there that if you take the time to mine out, it will greatly bless you in your walk with the Lord. I think we have one right here. I think we have one right here. Again, it deals with the problem of sin and the redemption of man, as I just said, the problem of sin was no small problem to deal with. It was literally the problem of the ages. Again, how can a holy God ever have fellowship with fallen sinners? You see, most people don't realize in our culture, or around the world for that matter, how desperate a condition sin has put us all in. Uh, the devil has worked very hard over the last 40 or 50 years to cause people to laugh at sin to cause people to think sin is no big deal. Sitcoms today are designed to get you to laugh at sin. Satan knows if you laugh at sin, it lowers your resistance to sin. It's no big deal. It's no big deal. And that's exactly what Satan wanted to accomplish in people's hearts. He wanted to instill in them the idea that sin is no big deal. You Christians, you're making a big deal out of nothing. Even to the point where some people actually believe that God encourages some sinful behavior because it makes us happy and God wants us happy. But I think Paul the Apostle said it better than anyone else in Scripture when he put his finger on the problem that sin had brought into all of our lives, the condition or the place it put us in, and how desperate that really was. Turn to Ephesians 2. And starting in verse 1, Paul is going to be, how can I put this, depressing us on purpose? You cannot appreciate a diamond of truth 
unless it's sitting on a, a background of black. That's why when you go to a jewelry store and you're buying a diamond for somebody, what does the jeweler often do? Pulls out a black a velvet piece of cloth or something that's black velvet, puts the diamond on it because he or she knows against the backdrop of the black velvet, the diamond shines more radiantly. Sometimes God will do that. Paul's doing this right here. He's a master communicator. And he's trying to paint as black a picture as he can of our predicament before Christ. So when he pulls out the diamond, which we'll get to in a second, wow, does it pop. Okay? here, But, but be prepared. Okay? Uh, of course, if you're not a Christian, this applies directly to you. Um, and I hope you do get a little scared and depressed about it because there's a solution. If you're a Christian, this was past stuff. This is B.C., okay? He's talking about believers in Ephesus. And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as others. Here in these verses, Paul the Apostle tells us that before we knew Jesus, four things characterized our lives. We were, first of all, dead in trespasses and sins, verse 1. Number two, we were in bondage or the slaves of Satan. Didn't know it at the time, but we were in bondage to the devil. He was our master, controlling our lives in ways we didn't really even understand back then. So first of all, we were dead in trespasses and sins. Second, we were in bondage to the devil. Verse 2 tells us, tells us that. Verse 3, uh, we were controlled by the lusts of our flesh, speaking of our fallen nature, which dominated and controlled us in the things we did and so on. And then number four, at the end of verse three, we were under God's wrath. Or in other words, we were doomed to spend eternity in hell. Now, guys, even though this is true of all people before they come to Jesus Christ for salvation, let's be honest, it's a message the world doesn't want to hear. Doesn't want to hear. It isn't politically correct to tell people that they're sinners. Do you notice that lately? It isn't politically correct to tell people that they're sinners and that no amount of good works that they do, uh, no many, it doesn't matter how many hours they spend at the soup kitchen uh, or, or helping people in this way or that, that no amount of good works is going to make them right with God and good in his eyes. Even if they even believe in the God of the Bible. There's a lot of neo-atheism going on, especially with young people. Uh, who have really have rejected the whole concept of God because as Paul said in Romans 1.18, many people, not just young people, but they seem to be uh, a bigger group of neo-atheists today uh, that people want to live unrighteously so they suppress the truth of God in their desire to live unrighteously because if you want to live a, a sinful life, you don't want God looking over your shoulder and bringing all that guilt, right? So in other words, let's get rid of God. No way I can live... Uh, you know, doing anything I want with impunity, and I don't have to worry about guilt and so on. So that's very popular today. But, um, you know, there are uh, unbelievers who uh, like to help people. They're not overtly uh, wicked people at all. Um, and they really think that because they're good people, they're going to go to heaven someday. Keep that thought in mind. We'll get back to it. But we know that's not true. No amount of good works is going to make you right in God's eyes or to clean you, cleanse you from your sin. And yet this is where religion makes its entrance into people's lives. You know, religious people have come to believe that if they go to church, you know, and offer God rituals, ceremonies, as a Roman Catholic, we lit candles, we prayed rosaries, uh, and uh, we offered God other assorted religious good works. Uh, we were taught, and many other religious people are taught, that if they do good things to help people, that those things will cleanse them of their sins and guarantee them a place in heaven someday. And yet God's word makes it clear that fallen sinful people can't do anything, not even in the way of religious works, to cleanse themselves of their sin in the eyes of God. I'll give you two classic passages on, the, on this. You can write the references down. First of all, Proverbs 20, verse 9. 
Who can say, I have made my heart clean, I am pure from my sin? Now, Solomon is saying something that uh, is very true, but a lot of people don't realize the Bible is saying it, and that is that uh, God is looking at the heart, by the way, right? He's not looking at your outward stuff, he's looking at the heart. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, they shall see God. The problem is we can't cleanse our own heart, right? The psalmist said, who can cleanse our own heart? Who can say, I have made myself clean, my heart clean from my own sin? The idea is nobody. When David sinned with Bathsheba and he finally repented, remember what he prayed? Create in me a clean heart. Who? Oh, God. He recognized that only God could cleanse him of his sin, and that would come through repentance and confession, right? But a lot of people are still convinced that they can live a life that will bring them eternal life someday, get them a place in heaven. Jeremiah 13, verse 23, uh, is another uh, verse on this subject, where God says to the prophet, can the Ethiopian change his skin, the color of his skin is the idea, or the leopard its spots, then may you also do good who are accustomed to doing evil. And, and the idea is nature, how you're born. You can't change what you are by nature, okay? Your appearance is what you were born with by nature. And you have, of course, a nature within you that uh, wants to do certain things and so on. We can't change what we are by nature, even though we can change our behavior somewhat. In other words, unbelievers can stop drinking, smoking, sleeping around, you know, that kind of thing. They can, oft, they can and often do change their outward behavior, but that doesn't mean in the eyes of God their hearts are clean. Jesus talked about the Pharisees. He called them whitewashed tombs because in Israel they would whitewash the tombs around the major feast times. Uh, you know, we're in Passover now in John 13. And so, of course, the tombs were all whitewashed so that travelers coming to Jerusalem for the first time in their life to celebrate the Passover will say uh, they didn't want to walk over a, a, a tomb. They'd be defiled and couldn't keep the Passover. So as a courtesy, let's whitewash the tomb so that people coming from a distance away can see that and know that, well, that's a tomb. I know that because they, they told me that they whitewashed these to help us not stumble over one. And that was a great analogy of what Jesus wanted to communicate. He said, you, you know, a whitewashed tomb looks all white and clean on the outside, but inside is full of dead men's bones and all kinds of uncleanness and defilement. You Pharisees are like that. Outwardly, your religion has made you look clean and pure and holy, but inside, as God sees your heart, you're wretched and miserable and, and defiled and, and so on. Because religion can only surface cleanse a person, but doesn't touch the heart. And just gives the illusion that somebody is right with God when they're not. So we are all guilty sinners, born into this world as fallen sinners. And I know at this point, some people would protest by declaring, but I'm a good person. You know that's biblical? Not that you're a good person, but that you would say you're a good person. <laughs> Proverbs 20, verse 6, most men, most women will each pro proclaim their own goodness. I'm sure you've heard this. Okay, talking to somebody about their need for Christ and uh, so on. Well, I know I'm good with God because I'm a good person. I'm not sure who told them they were a good person. God never said that. But they think they're a good person, okay? And yet Jesus in Matthew 19, verse 17 said, No one is good but God. Now, notice Jesus didn't say that no one is good as God. If Jesus would have said, look, no one's as good as God, we would all said, Amen. But I still think I'm good enough to get into heaven. No, he didn't say that. He said, no one is good but God. You see, the Bible defines goodness as moral perfection. And no human being on earth is morally perfect. Only one that's ever lived, Jesus Christ. The Bible defines goodness as moral perfection, and only God is morally perfect. Most people will say, well, I know I'm not perfect, but I, I still think I'm good enough to get into heaven. But God is saying very clearly in his word, 
that if you're not morally perfect, and this applies not just to the deeds you do, but the thoughts you think, right? Didn't Jesus say this in the Sermon on the Mount? Because the Pharisees were thinking, I'm right with God because I've never murdered anybody. I've never committed adultery with anyone. And Jesus said, if you've looked at a woman with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery with her in the eyes of God. And if you have hated somebody in your heart, in God's eyes, you've already committed murder. So obviously, obviously, it's not just the actions of our lives that God looks at. It's the, uh, the inward attitudes of our heart. But if you're not morally perfect in thought and in deed, you're not good. I think I'm good enough. You're not good enough. Mm-hmm. I'm not perfect, but I think I'm good enough. No, you're not. If you're not perfect, then you're not good enough. You can read James 2, uh, verse 10. Remember what James said? If you keep God's law perfectly your whole life, but then break one commandment, in God's eyes, you're a sinner, and you're going to hell. And because we're all born with what's called original sin, it's been passed down to us from Adam, we're done before we start. Even if you could live a morally perfect life, which none of us can. Again, God's word clearly says that no human being apart from Jesus is perfect. You all know Romans chapters 3 and 6, where Paul the Apostle states this very clearly. He said, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The glory of God is his sinless perfection. All have sinned. Here's the problem. Again, we know we're not perfect, but if we can find somebody a little more sinful than us, We stand next to them and think, I'm righteous because I'm not as bad as them. They're not the standard, right? And some people in life can achieve a little more goodness than the rest of us. I've likened it to this illustration. We went to the Grand Canyon a few years ago. And at some points in the Grand Canyon, you stand on one rim, and it's 25 or 6 miles across to the next other side. Imagine that the one side is earth and that 26-mile you know, side over there is heaven. And God says, if you can jump far enough to get there, you can make it to heaven. Now think about this, right? You have some people that are Olympic athletes. They, 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 they specialize in the long jump, right? And they're going to get a running start and they're going to leap. And who knows? I don't know. What is the record for... 30 feet, 35 feet, I don't know, somewhere around there, right? So they're going to get 30 feet out before they fall down to the bottom, right? Uh, they fell far short, but they're the best we have. If I tried it, and I'd take a good running start, I'd probably trip right at the end there and tumble <laughs> over the side, wouldn't get very far at all. But, but, but my point is, some people are, are more moral than others, and, and they can get a little farther to God through living a good life than others can. I think we would all agree, though, 30 feet is far short of 25 miles. And that's a crude illustration because that doesn't even begin to come close to what uh, it is to really try to get to heaven by your good works, right? So all have sinned and, and, and all, all have fallen short. The word for sin there in the Greek means to miss the mark. All have missed the mark, which is sinless perfection and have fallen short of God's perfect standard. Romans 6.26, for the wages of sin is death. All have sinned. All have fallen short. And the wages of sin is eternal punishment in hell. That's what death he's talking about. The lake of fire, the second death. And guys, that's basically what Paul is saying here in the first few chapters of Ephesians, excuse me, first few verses of Ephesians 2, that fallen man is hopelessly lost. And he wants to communicate that point for a reason. He really wants to drive that home. So as you read these first three verses, he keeps pounding us lower and just keeps bashing us lower and lower. What's he doing? He's trying to drive us lower and lower into this despair. That we understand the position sin has put us in, right? And after lowering us deeper and deeper into the pit of hopelessness and despair, by reminding us of our predicament, how we were separated from God through Adam's sin, we were slaves of the devil and doomed to spend eternity apart from God in hell, about the time when you think it's a hopeless thing, Uh, there's just no hope, 
Suddenly, Paul takes us from the pit of despair and skyrockets us to the heights of the greatest joy when he gives two words to begin verse 4. But God. But God. In other words, we were doomed to spend eternity in hell. We had no hope of getting out of that predicament. But God intervened. But God came to our rescue. Let me read verses 4 and 5. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Listen, by grace you have been saved. The Greek word for grace is a word that means a gift. A gift. He goes on to say that very clearly in verses 8 and 9 of Ephesians 2. For by grace you have been saved uh, through faith, that not of yourself. It's a gift of God, not the result of our good works, lest any should boast. God offers salvation as a free gift. It's not according to our works. The Bible makes that very clear. Only people that have really never read the Bible don't get that. And that's why it's so important to read God's Word, so that you know the truth. It'll set you free from error, right? But a person, until a person sees themselves as a sinner and realizes their utter hopelessness, the utter hopelessness of their predicament, they're never going to see their need for a Savior. And if they never see their need for a Savior, if they've never been made aware of how much of a sinner they are, how desperate their position or their condition is before God, if they never really see their need for a Savior, it means they're never going to cry out to Jesus to save them. And guys, this is where the true gospel comes in. And I say the true gospel because the devil has worked very hard to pervert the true gospel. We did a whole series on it in John 10, the gospel, the key to salvation. We liken the gospel to a key that opens the door of salvation. But if a key is bent and twisted, it's not going to open a door. And the same is true with the gospel. If the devil can pervert it and bend it and twist it enough so that it's not the gospel God presented, uh, it's not going to unlock the door of salvation where people are going to be saved. Very important point. The true gospel needs to be preached today. Folks, let me tell you some ways which the true gospel is being perverted. First of all, you realize, of course, that the gospel isn't a pillow. The gospel isn't a pillow to make a person's life more comfortable. It's a life preserver designed to rescue people who are drowning in the destructive power of sin and headed for an eternity of condemnation in hell. The gospel isn't happy talk. Some pastors are obsessed with happy talk. The gospel isn't happy talk. You know, a positive message that's designed to make people feel good or happy about themselves. Do you realize what the true gospel is? It is a brutal indictment of our sinful lives and how only Jesus, by Jesus dying, the God who made us had to come down to save us. It's a brutal indictment of our sinful lives and how only by Jesus dying on the cross is there hope of escaping the fires of hell. Guys, in that regard, the gospel is a warning to flee coming judgment and to take refuge in Jesus Christ who will save you and spare you from the wrath that is coming. It's kind of like a uh, tornado siren, right? You're in town and you've got a town that has a tornado warning system, right? I think most towns have them now by law. And say you're sleeping one night, three in the morning, and you know how that siren goes off, right? You ever wonder why they didn't program it with something more soothing like Brahms lullaby or something like that? Well, that's by design. They don't want you to take comfort in that siren going off. Oh, how beautiful. I could listen to that all night. It's a sound that's designed to be very loud, to startle you, wake you out of your sleep, because when that siren goes off, it's a warning, something bad is coming, quick, take shelter. Take shelter. That's what God designed the gospel to be. It was never designed by God to soothe people, make them feel good about themselves. You know, a happy talk where they just feel so lift, lifted up after, at the end of a church service, right? Because they heard the gospel. No, God designed it to be a, a siren, a warning system to tell people something bad is coming. It's judgment. It's coming on the whole world. 
And if you don't receive Christ, take refuge in him. Right now, you may not have tomorrow to make that decision. So get right now with him. And in the process, take refuge in him and find safety. Guys, again, too many pastors and preachers have stopped urging people to receive Jesus as the one who will save them from hell. So they have turned him, uh, who will save them from hell, and instead they have turned him into a sanctified butler, if I can put it that way, whose job it is to save them from all the discomforts of life. As one pastor put it, and I'm quoting him, for these folks, prayer then becomes ringing a little bell calling for butler Jesus to bring them up another pillow, end quote. You know, I said first service to first service. I want to, I, I want to be careful with this because I, I, I don't want you to get the wrong impression. Almost all evangelism today is based on the message of God's love. Now, I love God's love, and I love talking about God's love, okay? But do you realize that nowhere in the book of Acts did the apostles ever use God's love as a basis for preaching the gospel? It was always the coming judgment of God that they were encouraging people to flee to Christ to find protection against, okay? It was God's judgment. Now, I'm not saying that you can never talk about God's love when you witness to somebody. But in, a, in an attempt to make the gospel more palatable, more desirable, most Christians today want to focus only on God's love. Only on God's love. A well-known man of God who is with the Lord now even wrote a, va a very famous track which was titled, God Loves You and Has a Wonderful Plan for Your Life. Now, I understand where he's coming from, okay? And God does love us. And maybe the track should have read, God loves you and has a wonderful eternity planned for you. But between conversion and glorification, there is a lot of rough road. What if God wanted me to suffer for Jesus' sake? What if he wanted me to endure persecution? What if I was martyred for the cause of Christ? I mean, this is not in many people's minds God's wonderful plan for me. And yet if they heard that's what could possibly happen, maybe they wouldn't sign on too quickly to be a, a, a Christian without first knowing the cost, counting the cost, before receiving Christ. You realize, of course, that John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus Christ himself were both hellfire and damnation preachers. You realize that, right? The whole point in preaching the gospel is to tell people that they are lost and hell-bound. Again, I'm not saying you can't talk about God's love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish in hell. There you go. You're talking about hell, but you're talking about in the context of God's love and how he wants to save you. But the whole point of preaching the gospel is to tell people that they're lost and hell-bound, but that God loves them, that God loves them and gave his son to save them, to save them from hell, to bring them into the family of God where they will now enjoy beautiful fellowship, intimacy, communion with God. That, that's the point of salvation. And so, guys, when Jesus said that he would be glorified by going to the cross, he was talking about solving, again, the greatest problem facing the human race. How can a holy God ever have fellowship with fallen sinners when he clearly said to the prophet Habakkuk that he can't even bear to look upon sin, let alone have fellowship with sinners? That's quite a problem. The Holy Spirit writing through the psalmist touches on this very issue. Turn to Psalm 85. Psalm 85, verse 10, is one of those verses where you would be prone to read it quickly and move on. It's a nugget. It is a precious gem of truth. Psalm 85, verse 10. Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. This verse deals with, again, the cosmic problem of the ages. How can God show mercy to fallen sinners, to fallen man, 
by not sending them to hell and yet still be true to his word when he said, the soul that sins shall surely die. How can a righteous God ever have peace with unrighteous sinners so as to enter into fellowship with them? Well, as Jesus said, some things with man are impossible, but with God all things are possible. And of course, the answer is the cross. The answer is the cross. You know, someone writing in response to Ephesians 2, um, verses 1 to 3, but then verse 4, said something I'd like to read to you. He said, but God is the answer, but God is the answer to the greatest dilemma the human race has ever faced. How can a holy and righteous God who cannot bear to look upon sin ever have fellowship with sinners and allow them into heaven? The answer, but God sent his son to die for our sins and offer us heaven as a free gift. But God is where life, real life, eternal life begins. People say, I have made a mess out of my life. I have hit rock bottom. I have tried to change to live a good life, but I keep falling back into the same old habits. I can't change. But God has promised that through his son, he can change me and give me a new life. The author says, but God is the solution to any problem we face in life. My marriage is so bad that I believe it's impossible for me to fix it. But God can fix it, for with God nothing shall be impossible. I've just been told that my company has to lay me off because of my age, and I don't know who's going to want to hire me now and how I'm going to provide for my family. But God has promised to take care of me and my family because I am one of his child, uh, children. I have been, or I have been diagnosed with terminal cancer. The doctors say there is nothing more they can do. It's hopeless. But God can heal me if he chooses to. And if not, he'll take me to heaven to be with him forever because I have received Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. He said the atheist doesn't say but God. He defiantly rails no God. There is no God but man. Or there is no God but science. Or there is no God but human government or modern medicine or whatever. You fill in the blank. The atheist, the atheist cries out, no God. The religionist, religionist confidently cries, and God. It is me, my goodness, my religious works, and God that will get me into heaven. But like Paul, all true Christians shout, but God. I was helpless and without hope in this world, doomed to spend eternity in hell, but God came to my rescue, end quote. Folks, that is the answer to every problem we face in life, okay? Joe Biden has just been sworn in as president. Oh, my God. But God. God's on the throne. Anything we go through in life, just if you're a Christian, apply those words, but God. I don't care how black it looks, how hopeless it looks, God is able to work miracles, right? I was doomed to spend eternity in hell, but God came to my rescue. Jesus said, I have come to seek and to save those who are lost. But guys, only those who acknowledge they're lost, who acknowledge their guilt and need for a Savior, can be saved. Only those who acknowledge the hopelessness and helplessness of trying to earn heaven and cry out to Jesus to save them, will find forgiveness and eternal life. Jesus put it this way, only the poor in spirit will see God. And the Greek word for poor is a word that means absolute destitution. Only a person who is absolutely bankrupt of anything they could ever try to offer God to earn their salvation is going to be saved if they ask it from God because it's a free gift. So many people think that they're good enough to offer God some works that will help earn their salvation. They don't realize that if you try to offer God anything in the way of good works to earn something he's given for free, you're not going to get it. He won't give it to you. Only those who acknowledge the predicament sin has put them in can and, may I add, will cry out to, to, to Jesus to save them. Um, only a person who says, but God, is a person that's been broken by the Holy Spirit. Only a person that says, I am emptied of self, I have no recourse, I have no hope, but God, is a person that is ready for God to intervene. 
I hope you realize that the Bible, God says very clearly, my heart, my ears are always attentive to those that are broken in spirit and have a contrite heart. The proud, the arrogant need not apply. God's not looking to answer any prayers from the proud and arrogant who think they deserve what God's offering. God is the answer, right? And so when Jesus said he would be glorified by going to the cross, now we get a better understanding of what he was talking about. Again, verse 31 of John's Gospel, chapter 13, as we wind this down. So when he had gone out, that's Judas, Jesus said to his disciples, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. How did Jesus glorify the Father? Well, let me give you the three ways quickly, and then you can wrestle with these and study them on your own. And not that we're going to do these perfectly like Jesus did, but this is the standard, this is the, the goal, what we're shooting for, okay? How did Jesus glorify the Father? First of all, by obeying him fully. He said in John 8, 29, I do always those things that please my Father. So first of all, by obeying him fully. Number two, by representing him perfectly. John 14, verse 9, if you've seen me, Jesus said, you've seen the Father. There's no difference in how I have lived my life on the earth than my Father. We're one, but I have perfectly represented him. And number three, by finishing the ministry that God has given you to do, whatever that ministry may be. Jesus in John 17, verse 4, I have finished the work the Father has given me to do. So that's how we glorify God, right? By obeying Him fully, by representing Him perfectly, and by finishing His ministry, which He has given to us. Verse 32, and we'll close. If God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself and glorify Him immediately. If God is glorified in Christ, which He, of course, was, God will also glorify Him in Himself. God the Father will see to it that Jesus Christ, his son, is going to be honored. In fact, it's already in the future with the coming kingdom. Um, you can read Psalm 2. We're running out of time, but Psalm 2, verses 7 to 9, where uh, the father said that uh, he had a kingdom prepared for his son who would someday reign over the earth. And one that we read all the time at Christmas time every year, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. This is talking about Jesus. As I said to first service, Jesus is not the, the Everlasting Father. Uh, Jesus is Jesus. The Father is the Father. The Spirit is the Spirit. They are three separate and distinct persons that make up one God. So why does the prophet call Jesus the everlasting father? The Hebrew means father of all eternity, father or source of all creation. That's again John 1, 3. For by him all things were made. Nothing was made without him was made that was made. Okay? So Jesus is not the father, just to clarify that. Uh, he goes on to call him the prince of peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom uh, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord will perform this. So there is coming a day. Now, I know in verse 32, Jesus said the Father was going to glorify him immediately. And that happened when Jesus rose from the dead, eventually ascended back to the Father. In Psalm 110, verse 1 the father said to Jesus, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. So 2,000 years before Jesus comes back, we think he's coming back soon. So 2,000 years before he is going to come back and establish a kingdom where he would get glory, already the father is giving him a place of glory uh, as sitting next to him to, to say to all of creation that Jesus Christ uh, is his beloved son in whom he is well pleased. Now, let me just end by saying this, okay? There is a future kingdom coming. There is a future kingdom coming, okay? Where Jesus is going to reign, Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7, Jesus is going to reign over the whole earth visibly, all right? And that was made possible by Jesus going to the cross and dying for our sins because as uh, people that want to be members of the kingdom, Jesus had to die. 
Because if he hadn't died, we couldn't have entered God's kingdom someday, okay? So as you think about it, as we have entered the Christmas season, this is ultimately what we're celebrating. Think about this. When Jesus was born and laid in that manger, I want you to think about it, in light of all we just talked about, can you, can, you, can you just see in your mind's eye the Lord writing over this baby, but God. Think about that for a second. In that major was lying the answer to all of man's problems. It, that was a living illustration of what we just talked about. That was the predicament of the ages. Hopeless, helpless, bound to spend eternity in hell. That was our plight. And suddenly a baby arrives. And God says, but God. Here's the answer. Here's the one I promised you. Someday he's going to reign. And if you want to live in that kingdom, and I am longing for that kingdom more than I ever have, you need to bow the knee to Jesus now to be a part of that kingdom then. May God give us grace, right? And when you think about the Christmas season now, you have something more to think about. Uh, it just blows the mind to, to see Jesus in that manger and the words but God over him. Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you for your great love wherewith you loved us. We thank you, Lord, that we were helpless sinners that were doomed to spend eternity in hell, but you loved us. You sent your son to die for us. You intervened. You rescued us. And Lord, we thank you for your great love wherewith you loved us. And now, Lord, give us grace to live for you while we're on this earth, looking forward to that coming kingdom. When, Lord Jesus, you're going to reign in glory, where you're going to rule with a rod of iron, where you will not tolerate evil and justice, violence, and so on. You will rule over a kingdom of righteousness and peace. We thank you, Lord. We ask you to give us grace to live for you each and every day as we look forward to your return. We ask all this now in Jesus' precious name. Amen.